We'd Like a Word. Welcome to part three of this episode of We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, the good-looking one. <laughs> That's because he's got a dog on his knee. I'm pretending he's <laughs> a dog on his knee. And me, Stephen Colgan. And we have reckless author RJ McBrien and Faber Writing Academy tutor and author Shelley Weiner. I mentioned uh, Jodie Foster, Richard. RJ is Richard. So you went to drama school with her or something like that? Drama school, and she was in the... The drama school was at Yale Drama School, which, which is a graduate bit of it. And she was an undergraduate. So she used to come and see the shows and was obviously even then was quite famous because obviously she'd done Taxi Driver and various other things when she was very young. So she used to come and be supportive, which was obviously very nice of her. You don't sound very East Coast. <laughs> no, I just went there for out of interest, really. No, and then I came. Oh, right. <laughs> No, no, I, I'm, I'm entirely, I did my degree here and then I went there to do a postgraduate degree here. Well, tell us a Jodie Foster story. I don't have a Jodie Foster story, but I do have an Arthur Miller story. I met Arthur Miller, but that was the, uh, I just met him because he was, I had to have a job to pay my way, which was to go and get props in a van for a theatre called the Long Wharf Theatre. And he had a play on there. And then we were all allowed to meet him afterwards as you know the junior, junior people. And that's how I shook the hand that touched the gland of Marilyn Monroe. That's <laughs> extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary. I, I didn't actually say that to him, but I didn't actually say that to him. <laughs> and it was very odd because he, I had done a Death of a Salesman for A-Level. You know, I, I, you know, when you do it for A-Level, you never forget those few books that you do, you know, back to front. And it was very strange to meet him. He was relatively old, old man by then. And I think his daughter, Rebecca Miller, was, was there as well as, a, as an undergraduate. So I, I, did, I did meet the great man. We have a question from a listener, Janice Staines, which is, which is easier to write? Because you've gone on to write screenplays for Wallander, Red Caps, Soldier, Soldier, Merlin, Atlantis, Spooks. And her question is, what is easier to write, a screenplay or a novel? And why is that? I would say a screenplay is is easier, probably. It's a lot shorter. So, you know, a screenplay um, is you, for, for a film is about uh, between 90 and 120 pages. It, they, the way it's laid out is a page a minute. And so TV, it can be as little as 45 pages. And so a film, a proper film is probably 25,000 words. And as you know, novel, 100,000 words. So it's, 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 it's a huge, much, many, many more words, just physical words. And they have to be in the right order, which is always, difficult for me and then you've got to control everything as a novelist if you're doing a screenplay and you want a sort of middle-class woman who comes from a wealthy family or whatever whatever behavior to describe her you can do it very briefly and the wardrobe department and the actress and the production designer sort out all that stuff so they will obviously do the set design and they create what it looks like whereas in a book you have to do all of that you have to describe the world of your character as well as the internal world of your character and because you're in control of more things I think it is more difficult and screenplays tend to be almost like anecdotes they're quite simple stories really when you boil it down to it you know they, they're mostly in three acts they're not exactly formulaic but they follow conventions certain conventions whereas novels you can do whatever you like you can be as experimental as Virginia Woolf or you can be as conventional as, I don't know, contemporary thriller, but you have huge choice. So that's 
difficult, more difficult, I think. And in television, very often you are given the world, don't forget. So if you're writing spooks, you've got the world, you've got the characters. You come up with the plot, but you, you're given, like a lot of episodic television, you're given certain elements. Whereas in a, in a book, the intimidating thing about a book is you could do anything. <laughs> That's the problem. problem is I forgot to mention that you did the bill as well. Do you find that classic phrases from the bill are trying to come out and escape into your other works of fiction? I'm thinking of classic lines like, you too rag! And on way gov. On way gov. Because you, the bill was very uh, restrictive, but also quite helpful because it had to take place within a shift, within an eight hour shift. So you weren't allowed to go into their home life. You're not allowed to send things off for DNA and you're not allowed to swear because police, police are swearing the whole time. So they, they always relied things like, just like you say, you tow rag and on way gov, things like that. And the, you, know, you must get the soccer, soccer, what's it called? The scene of crime officer, soccer officer. Soccer. Go in. <laughs> so these, yes, they were phrases that you could use. And if you tried anything else, they, they cut it out. But it was a very good place for young aspiring directors, writers, actors, because they gave you a chance. They gave everybody a chance because on three times a week. Funny you say that, actually. Just, there was a discussion on Facebook last night between myself and Joel Morris, the writer, and a few other people all about something called a nurk, which is where someone substitutes a non-swearing swear word just so that something will pass senses. You know, you things like feckin' Father Ted. Although, of course, that is, but that is used in Ireland yeah. and, uh, you know, and various other ones. And the discussion was whether, in the old days, the baddies, the villain with the mustachio villain, went curses, fall again, whether that was a very early version of a nerd. <laughs> we think, we think it probably be. was. <laughs> they would say struth, wouldn't they? Struth. Yes. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, all the blimeys and bagoras and all the rest of it, that's how they all started, of course, as, as sort yeah. of less blasphemous versions than the real things that people will say. Yeah. And then you could say things like you could say shite, but you couldn't say shit. No, exactly. Yeah. Really, what was the difference? It was it was mad. It's very weird, isn't it? Yeah. But they are two very different things. I mean, screenplays and novels, which is why sometimes the two just don't translate to each other. I mean, I think famously, we've discussed this before on the show, that, that certain writers like Douglas Adams, for example, or P.G. Woodhouse, all the joy of reading their books is in their use of language, their use of description and metaphor and simile. And of course, the minute you turn that into a screenplay, none of it works because there's nothing an actor can do on screen that approximates two ants bellowing to each other like ancient mastodons across a swamp. You know, it's just... Yeah, and then it's just silly if you try and do a visual... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Very different animals. True. It used to be that bad, bad books make good films because what you're gutting it for is the plot. Yes. It doesn't matter how badly it's written. As well as Richard, quite a lot of um, screenwriters who come to the novel writing courses at Faber. And uh, one of the biggest challenges for them, I think it's a, a, a challenge and a, a huge gift, is to be given access to the consciousness of, the, of their character. Um, you can say it's hard work. It is hard work. And it's um, great for megalomaniacs because you have control over everything rather than this whole team thing, which is nice as well of writing for screen. But they find the screenwriters who come on the courses are great at narrative, really excellent at understanding plots, the simply, you know, the, the mechanics of it, the scaffolding, as you said, and I think that's what draws them to it, but really, really struggle to get into the heart and soul of their character. 
So that I think is a whole new terrain that's open to them, which is great mm-hmm. at heart. Yeah. And you remember we st- we discussed that a lot, didn't we, Richard? In the because I was mostly plot oriented and would describe things in prose or as if they were a film. Your dialogue was always excellent because that's what you were doing. But it was almost getting behind the dialogue. It's not what she says, but what she thinks and how she yeah. feels. Yes, I heard a dog. I heard a dog. I know. I know. It's getting near walk time. They're all starting to become more impatient. <laughs> Shelley, I mentioned. I, I listed your books that you, because you, you've written what one, two, three, four, five, seven, I think, seven books. But can you tell us about the one you're working on at the minute, which I think is called Summer Strand? Yeah, um, I think all my book, a lot of my fiction has been sort of informed and pushed forward by my questions about the past, how, how people deal with awful traumas and whether they can go forward and live their life or they lie about it or they dissimulate. And that was based on my parents' experience. They were both Holocaust survivors who came to live in South Africa where I grew up. In the irony of living under an apartheid regime, how did that all fit together? And a lot of my novels, The Joker, was the most specific about a young girl growing up in Cape Town whose parents fairly closely modeled on my parents, but not them. How did she adapt to the society around her and this very murky history that her parents never spoke about? And this new book, the latest book, Summer Strand, which I've been working on for many, and I think incorporates everything I've always, I've been mulling over and writing about throughout my writing career is set in South Africa in 1948. And that's the year that apartheid came into being. And during the months in which the action takes place, a young couple arrive as Holocaust survivors, also my parents, and how they deal with the survival again, this new society, the pressures of their dreadful uh, wealthy family who have no understanding of what they've been through. Your parents were from Lithuania. They were Lithuanian, yeah. And and they were married in a ghetto in Lithuania during World War II. Yeah. And then they they dissolved the ghetto and my father went to, was sent to Dachau and my mother went to another camp in uh, Poland called Stutthof. Both survived and somehow managed to find each other in Italy, of all places, uh, where my father had landed as a as a translator. He spoke many languages for the United Nations or whatever it was then. And my mother had heard through some really complicated grapevine that he'd survived. And so they got together in a camp in Italy until they heard from family in South Africa. And that's how they landed up there. Yeah. Extraordinary story, isn't it? It is, it is. It feels, you know, obviously it's history now. And I would say that, you know, book set in 1948 is now historical fiction. I mean, it's quite, it, it is. But I think yeah, there should be, there still is an interest, revival of interest in the period. And in the situation, you know, it's a universal story of people, small people in big times, you know, how do they make their way through? Yeah. You're one of three sisters. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm the and oldest. you all grew up in Port Elizabeth then? All grew up in Port Elizabeth. Yes, I know you have a South African connection as well, Paul, don't you? I've worked a lot in Umlazi, which is near Durban and a bit in Cape Town and some other parts of South Africa. 
doing radio things for the BBC. And I very much enjoy going there, although haven't been there lately, of course. Nobody's been moving around. But are any of your family still in South Africa? No, no, everyone's left. My parents are no longer alive. And so it feels a very remote country to me now. There's a kind of uh, never felt like my country and yet nowhere does, you know. I think this is common for many writers trying to find where is home? What does that mean? How do people need a home? I think it, it helps uh, sort of hone your observational skills. If you're feeling a little bit on the outside looking in. Yeah, I've been living in England, in London since the 1970s. So very long time. It must make a difference as well if, if, the, if the place that you see through the sort of lens of your memory has changed dramatically since you were young. I mean, even on a yeah. much less traumatic and, and more dramatic scale. I mean, I grew up in Cornwall in the 60s and 70s. And in the back of my mind, there's always been this, this homing instinct. That I want to go back and live there again, which I invariably will. But I go back there now and it's not the same place. I mean, for a start, you barely hear any Cornish accents. It's, it's, uh, it seems that, you know, particularly all the, all the nicer areas, and I mean, Cornwall is three quarters coast. It's all people basically from the southeast have moved down there. And it, it's, it's very strange because I've got a very specific view of what Cornwall is like. And if I wanted to write about it, I would probably be drawing on my memories. Yeah. But I would then have to set the book in the 70s because it's nothing like that now. Nothing like it at all. And it must be even more. It must be magnified 100% for you. In South Africa. Yeah, I have been yeah. back and I've certainly been back post-apartheid several times. And it feels there's this terrible, a strange disjunct between familiarity and complete estrangement, you know, that you understand the topography. I go back to Port Elizabeth. I know exactly where I could find my way around the city. It's not very large in the dark. And yet it's not the same. It's so different. So it, it does make one feel very weird. That's interesting. This, I mean, this do you find book, the same thing with Belfast, Paul? I don't know wh where I would go back to because the place that I know is in my imagination and it has changed a lot and then also not enough. So in some ways I might be happier going back to the Republic of Ireland where I lived for a much shorter period of time mm. because I know that's changed, but my roots are in the north, so that would be... Less, less of a, a clash of imagination and reality. But I was thinking, Shelley, you've had this book for a long time. It's a long gestation. And uh, Richard, I know you've had very long gestatory periods for a, a film. Yes. Is this one called Nautica? Yes. That, well, that is interesting. Yes. The reason why I bring it up is because this is a cue for you to celebrate having Ewan McGregor and Heath Ledger on board, but... Well, yes, at the beginning, it was absolutely fine. So I wrote, I wrote a script and uh, managed to sell it. And the, a guy called Jonathan Demi was going to direct it. Who, oh, yeah. Not, not Jonathan Demi, Ted Demi. Ted Demi is Jonathan Demi's uh, nephew. And he did a film called Blow with Johnny Depp. Yeah, and yeah. so Ted Demi was a sort of young, I suppose he was in his early 30s. And he got <laughs> Heath Ledger and... Ian McGregor, Ian McGregor to, to be in it, and that was fine. So then it was all going to go ahead. We were getting, uh, they had to get a very big tank, which is in Malta, because it was filmed in water. So they have, they have to have a, there's only a few of these big tanks available where you can put boats and then film. Uh, there's one in Mexico, I think, and one in Malta. Anyway, all was going well. And then poor old Ted Demby was in a pro celebrity basketball game and dropped down dead. 
at the age of 33. So that was very traumatic, obviously, for him. And, but also everything went on hold at that point. He had a very young baby of about three months old. And so everything stopped. And then they tried to get various other directors. And then Heath Ledger died as well. So at that point, the whole thing sort of collapsed. And since then, there have been every few years a director pops up and wants to do it. But it's very, very frustrating from my point of view. I think that was about 16 years ago, something like that. And it's been, it went on and on and on and on forever and ever and ever. But they, the funny thing about those, uh, when you sell, sell a film like that, is you sell the option to it, not the actual film. So they kept on optioning it. So every now and again, they would re-option it. But eventually, eventually it comes back to you, the writer. So you think, oh, that's great. Now I can, now I can do it smaller scale. I can try and do it in Europe. But they attach costs to it. So they can say, yes, you can have your film back but you have to pay back all the money we've spent on it. And then that is how many films get stuck yeah. because they have these costs associated with them. So there's over a million dollars associated with this film, not to me, but to pay people like Ted Demi and you know, various fees. So the whole thing, it, it can't go forward or back. It just, it just stuck, just stuck. So I, I like the idea that in the script, writing that you've been involved in that and sometimes you're writing the script you're originating it and sometimes yeah. you're rewriting or polishing someone yeah. else's script and that can be kind of ridiculously circular yes well I, that has definitely happened to me where i wrote a i wrote a tv series which actually was made called trust which is an itv thriller then that got picked up by hollywood and i wrote the script and then they said, I oh, don't know about that. And then everything went quiet for, for a while. And then I had my Nautica experience off the back of which I got jobs rewriting other people's scripts. Then they sent me my own script. So they said, oh, we've got this script called Trust. It needs a fresh pair of eyes. We think you'd be the person to do it. <laughs> so well, wait a second. I wrote that script, you know, you idiot. And uh, anyway, they didn't, find, they didn't find that funny at all. I thought it was, they didn't find that <laughs> funny. And that was that. I didn't. I didn't get to write my own rewrite. I should have said nothing. I should have said, "Okay, well, because that's going to be quite expensive." Uh, because it could have been the script written by Richard McBrien and R.J. McBrien, and people would have thought, "God, I wonder are they related?" And I suppose that that would have been very funny. That's exactly what I should do. Because when you when you get the credits in a in a film, the, the, how you write the and is important. So if it's uh, you know Mary and Susan, that means they've written it together. And if there's an ampersand, that the person underneath it has rewritten the people above it. And Mary, and ampersand Bob. Bob has rewritten the people above. And it's all to do with how much money you get and what the credit is. And the credit is, you know, decides how many, how much royalty you get on the DVD sales. It's all ludicrous, I have to say. But anyway, this has got to be the plot of the next book. It has to, be especially, especially when the studio keeps going back between the original author and the person rewriting, and they're the same person. And that's, got to, <laughs> that's got to be a plot of a book. There's got to be a comedy novel there. Just, Absolutely. Well, I think your say... own script is hilarious. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's great. I should have handled it better. I should have shut up. I should not have called them on it and said, don't be so silly, because it made them look silly. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you should have said, well, it's got to take, yeah. oh, this piece of whatever. This is such a, This is a big job. 
there's a lot of, there's a lot of ego, a lot of ball swinging in Hollywood. <laughs> Firstly, I had to say how brilliant it was, but... You know. Yes, I must say, I'd love to meet the writer, the original writer, because he's obviously very talented. <laughs> very talented. Maybe you could fly us both out to Hollywood and, and we'll meet your place. Exactly. If, you, if you don't like this book, I'm going to. <laughs> Well, don't. I, you've, I've never thought of it before, but it does sound quite a, a very good yeah. idea. No, I won't yeah, touch it. I promise I won't touch it. But yeah, it'd be a great idea. But in um, but hey, better to be eternally the... optioned than to have a film made badly is what I always say. Yes. I always go back. I always go back to the experience of Marie Phillips, who wrote. Um, she she's published by the same um, publisher as Paul and myself, and she wrote a book a few years ago called God's Behaving Badly. The film was oh. optioned. It, it got made starring Liam Neeson, Sharon Stone, a stellar cast. And the film was so bad and so poorly received at the test screenings that it was shelved, never to be shown ever again. But she's in a situation where she can't ever have her film made properly now. That's, that must be even worse. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, the other thing that production companies do, which is increasingly, is they, they uh, legally assign themselves as the author. Yes. So that you write, you write your script and they say, we are going to take, I forgot what, how, what the technical phrase is, but, but they become the legal author of your original screenplay. I mean, yeah. that, that's why I gave up doing that because what screenwriting is exchanging control for money, basically, so that you have absolutely no control. You can be fired without you even being told. So you can see in, in the paper, you know, I had a friend who, who's more successful than I am. He was, he was reading Variety to see that he'd been fired off his own project. And they hadn't even told him. You haven't completely given up. I haven't completely given Green up. Screenplay writing. What are you working on at the minute? I'm working on a comedy, a comedy script that couldn't be further from this called Nobot, which is about the world of, of personal robots, which are taking everybody's job, which I think is going to happen. And there's a movement in my future world where, where, where there the, are the sort of protesters called no-bot protesters who go around sort of smashing up robots. And I'm writing this with a colleague of mine. And then the, the, the silly sort of comedy thing is that the hero gets involved in, in smashing up because he, gets, because he gets replaced in his job. He gets involved in a riot. And while he escapes, he gets put into a box and sent to somebody's house where he has to pretend to be a robot. You know, and then he falls in love with the woman. So it's like a sort of Mrs. Doubtfire meets um, Dustin Hoffman one where he was dressed as a woman. Tootsie. Tootsie. And also in film, you're always having to say, it's so-and-so meets so-and-so with a little bit of this. I thought meets Tootsie. This is an original movie idea, which we, we've been, which we have been writing forever. And then they, the last time we, we did get, we got, a, we got an agent involved and we went to see him and he said, well, do you think you can make the whole thing about COVID? What? No. No. No, 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 no. I think what you mean to say is, I know a very good writer you could hire to, <laughs> to rewrite this. Okay. He's been Similarly named. Mm -hmm. He's been very good on a number of other projects. And then I'll go and put a different hat on and come and go, hello. <laughs> it's very topical, though. I've, I've just been doing some stuff for a non-fiction piece I'm writing at the moment. And it's, it's genuinely predictive that within the next 20 years, up to 50% of the workforce could be replaced because of AI. That's a really worrying development, I think. We're going to see the rise of new Luddites and new saboteurs. We really are. Well, you think about, you know, if you think about chefs in the fast food restaurants, they can be mm. very, very easily replaced because that's not very difficult, is it? You know, that's quite a simple no. thing to do for a machine. We did quite a lot of research on it. It is frightening how good robots are getting. The only thing that they won't be able to do is the very, very badly paid jobs. 
So, oh, uh, like being an author. Being yeah. an author. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where we get around. Or an artist, yeah. Writing novels. Exactly. You don't get paid very much, but you have ultimate control, which is yeah. great. Yes, it is true. Was there a Neil Stevenson short story once about a world where little tiny nanobots exist in the atmosphere all around it? They call it utility fog. So you can just say, I want a cup of tea, and it will create it from the atoms all around you. So the only people with any power or any prestige are artists and writers, because they're the only people who can create something the machines can't. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a nice idea. On that happy note, we're coming to the end of part three of this episode of Weed Like a Word. With me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Coleman. Thank you very much, Shelley Weiner, for coming on Weed Like a Word. And RJ McBrien with your new book, Reckless. Thanks very much for joining us. It's been a fascinating chat. Well, thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for asking me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Until the next time, you've been listening to We'd Like a Word.